All right, we are going to talk about the church today. Our topic is ecclesiology, which is reference to the study of the church. And then uh, next week we'll kick off um, four weeks in eschatology. So we'll have to wait till the next couple of weeks to know when Jesus is coming back. So if you can wait a little while, you'll be all right. But that, that sort of ensures that he's not coming back in the next week or two, doesn't it? <laughs> I let the cat out of the bag. Ecclesiology, the study of the church. So let's start with some basics. Definition and use of the word church in the New Testament. When you see that word church, what is that? Well, it comes from the Greek word ecclesia, which refers to a gathering or an assembly, and it's not something unique to the church. In fact, it was used during the first century to refer to other formal gatherings as well. It's simply a gathering or an assembling together of people. It's even used in the Old Testament translation um, called the Septuagint to refer to gatherings. So it's kind of a general, um, generic term of some kind. However, in the New Testament, when you see the word church, it's a very specific entity because it always refers, or at least 99% of the time, refers to what we're looking at here, or the universal body of Christ, the church, God's people. And so that's our understanding of that word. And so when we hear the word church today, that's the way that we treat it. It's a gathering of God's people. When you look into the New Testament and how it's actually used, there are three different ways that that word is used to refer to God's church. The first one is what we would refer to as the universal church. You turn to Matthew chapter 16 with me. Matthew chapter 16. This is often referred to as the invisible church, the universal church. Oftentimes you'll see it used with a capital C, for instance, to designate that. But the universal church or the invisible church, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said this. We'll start in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Well, what he revealed to him was that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. He says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, the rock there is his his, um, declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not Overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's a reference to the universal church. The universal church is really the entity that is made up of all born-again believers in history, past, present, and future. So a criteria to be a member of the universal, universal, universal church is that you have to be a Christian, not just in name, You have to be born again. You have to have been redeemed, forgiven, justified, sanctified. It is an exclusive club and there is no other way in than through the blood of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus here is talking to Peter, he's talking about that worldwide universal church that he was going to build that would include all of believers from that first century all the way through their second coming of Jesus Christ. Christ. We see this referenced a number of times in the uh, New Testament. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, we see it quite a bit. Let's go ahead and do that. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, we're told that He, God, put all things in subjection under His feet, Christ, and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. That is a reference to the universal church. Jump down to chapter 3, verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church, that's the universal church, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. How about we turn to chapter to verse 21 of the same chapter? To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's a reference to the universal church, not a specific local church at Ephesus, but to the universal church. Turn to chapter uh, 5. Verses 23 and following, chapter 5. You're all familiar with this passage. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. That's the universal church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church, that's the universal church again, in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. So Paul is talking there about the universal church. So when you see that word church in the New Testament, that's one of the things you have to look for. Is he referring to this large body of all believers, all sanctified, born-again believers in Christ? Now, a second way that this word church is used is to refer to what we call the local church. Oftentimes, you would not capitalize the C on that, for instance. For instance, anytime I'm referring to the universal church in anything I write, I put a capital C to signify that's the universal church, all believers. But when dealing with the small groups of believers in specific locations, that would be the local church. They often meet in the same place, have a building much like what we do here. They meet together for fellowship and for other things. Oftentimes they have a name. You know, we call ourselves Renew Bible Church. That's a way to designate this small group of believers. This is a subset of the universal church. But it's a smaller group. Now, one of the things that differentiates the local church from the universal church is you don't have to be saved to be a member in a local church. Now that may shock some of you. What I mean by that is there are many people that will come in and sit in a church building, will say, I'm a member of this church or that church, but they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So in that respect, it isn't always necessarily a restricted club. There's no way to guarantee that because somebody comes in and sits into a building like this on a Sunday morning to worship... There's no guarantee that that individual is saved. In fact, I've shared this with you before. A pastor friend of mine who once was asked, how many people do you think are saved in this church as you look out at this audience? And he said, maybe maybe half of them. He might have been right. Even Jesus himself, as he separates the sheep and the goats, there are some people in that group that seem to be a little surprised that they're not, not a part of his club, if you will. Because he didn't know them. But they thought... Because of whatever reasons, whatever they did, wherever they went, wherever they showed up, because they wore that label, that they were part of 
church. They may have been part of a small local body, but it doesn't guarantee their salvation. And so this local church is different from the universal church. It's a subset that represents the universal church, but it, there's no guarantee that all those who call that local body their home are actually saved. We see this throughout the New Testament as well, these local churches mentioned. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. First Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19. Paul is writing, and he says this at the end of his letter. The churches, notice his plural there, the churches of Asia greet you. Achilla and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Paul there is referring to individual small local bodies of believers spread throughout Asia, one specifically in the house of Priscilla and Achilla. That's the local church. That's a body much like what we have here. Colossians chapter 4, verse 15. Paul writes, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha, and the church that is in her house. An individual named Nympha here had a local body of believers that met in her home. She was likely a a fairly wealthy individual. That seems to be the pattern, maybe. They had larger homes, and they could house groups of believers. So he mentions there specifically a church. Verse 16, when this letter is read among you, he's referring to a specific church there at Colossus, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. Apparently there was another church over in Laodicea. Paul wanted this letter read to them. And likewise, Paul had sent them a letter, and they were supposed to send that letter over to the church at Colossus. How about Romans chapter 16? Have you go backwards there? Romans chapter 16. Starting at verse 3, Greet Priscilla and Achilla, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. He's referring there to small local churches, made up primarily of Gentiles. And greet the church that is in their house. Again, Priscilla and Achilla, this is another location. They lived in two places. They had church houses, or they had a house in both churches. Greet the church that is in their house. So Paul is referring to a very specific local church there. So we have in the New Testament a reference to the universal church, which again is a large body of believers. Every believer makes up that universal body. But then you have these small local churches. Now there's one other way that the word church is used in the New Testament. It's never really been given a category. I refer to it as a regional church. And the reason I do that is because there are times and places in the New Testament where references are made to all believers but in a specific location which obviously if it's referring to, say, the churches or the believers that are spread throughout Asia, and they're referred to as the church, it's not a small local church, it's many local churches, but it's also not referring to the whole universal church body. And so we get a couple of references like that. Acts chapter 9, I'll just read this to you. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed being built up and going out in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and continued to increase. And so there Paul sort of uses a hybrid of sorts. Or not Paul, but Luke when he writes this. He refers to the universal church in some respects, but on a much smaller scale. That it's the church, genuine, real believers, born-again believers, that live in this particular area. 
And so he references that. So, that, so again, we find these different references. In fact, I'll give you some others here you can look up on your own, but 1 Corinthians chapters, or um, chapter 1, verse 2. Paul refers to churches throughout that region. Galatians chapter 1, verse 2. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1. Paul does something very similar. Those references are really somewhere between that universal church and the small local churches because Paul's referring to, in essence, all genuine saved believers in a particular region. We might do the same thing if we say our born-again brothers and sisters in Christ in Iraq. We're not talking generally about an individual specific church, but rather all believers that are in that region. Or we might say, you know, Africa right now is probably the fastest growing Christian church in the world. Well, it's a lot of little churches. But we're talking about all saved, genuine believers that are on the continent of Africa or in northern Africa. And so there's these three ways that this word is used. And that's important because as you interpret scripture, you have to understand what they're talking about. One of the ways I saw this come come to light was a few months back, I was meeting with an individual. I do some IT work for them on the side. It's, he owns a, some storage units. And he was raised in a um, fundamentalist, King James-only Baptist church who, you know, they, they have um, certain rules and restrictions. You know, women can't wear pants and, and other things. And then you, know, you can only use the King James version of the Bible. And there's some very legalistic things. And one of the legalistic things was that they treat the building as a sacred place, much like you might have treated the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. And there are some passages that talk about how do you conduct yourselves in the household of God. And so this individual asked me, he's like, I've been struggling with that a little bit because we've always treated that as you have to behave a certain way within the four walls of that church But I'm beginning to think that that passage really isn't about the four walls of the church, but us outside the walls of the church. So we talked about this very thing. I said, well, let's look at how the word church is used. Sometimes it refers to that place where you might meet, the church in your home, but it's really the believers there, but it is referencing a particular location. But other times it's this universal, and that's something he had never heard before. And so as we talked, he's like, man, I've never really thought about the church in our denomination has always been the building and so his eyes were somewhat opened and so that's why we cover something like this so when you look at the scriptures you'll see the word church used in numerous ways sometimes it just means every believer throughout history genuine born again believer Jesus said he would build that church but within that you have small local regional areas and you have Christ's presence there, but then you might also have these little tiny bodies of believers like you and I. And again, it helps us to to ferret out our theology too, because if you are a born-again believer, genuine born-again believer, then you are a part of Jesus' church. No question about it. But if you come to Renew on Sunday mornings and you sit here, there's no guarantee that you're saved, just because you happen to be within the walls of Renew Bible Church. And that's important, because people get confused by that. I grew up in a denomination where just showing up on a Sunday morning for 45 minutes and going through the rituals suggested you might be saved or that you were baptized. You were saved. But that's not the case. So, there are a number of descriptions of the church as we get into the New Testament as well. We're going to look at a handful of those. What is the church? We've kind of given it a, a, you know, a simple definition. But 
there are a number of ways in the New Testament that the church is referred to, and one of them is the people of God. That's something that we borrow in some respects from the Old Testament. God's people. But we don't often think of the church as being God's people. Chapter uh, 9 of Romans. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verse 24. We'll read a couple of verses here. Paul says that we are called not from among the Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. He also says in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, and here's the reference, my people. That's a reference to the church. And who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, that's a reference to the Gentiles primarily, they shall be called the sons of the living God. What Paul is talking about here in Romans is the church and refers to it as my people, God's people. Peter also refers to Hosea here. He says, he actually quotes it, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellence of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, for you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And so Peter, as he's referring to the church of God, refers to it as the people of God, a people for God's own possession. In the same way that God looked at Israel in the Old Testament, took possession of a people, he's done the same thing. We are God's people, we are God's possession. I'll give you another verse, Titus chapter 2, verse 14. We're told that Jesus gave himself up to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself, what? A people for his own possession. So when you think about the church, we're God's people. You know, the world, with its many different religions, thinks we're arrogant and proud for making such a bold statement. We're not the ones making it. God declared... And then Jesus fulfilled the creation of a people of God. We're also told that we are the household of God. Kind of a variance of that. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Whoops. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints who are of God's household. Having been built up on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple of the Lord. We'll get to that in a moment. In whom you are also being built together into the dwelling of the Spirit. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But primarily the reference there is the household of God. That we are the household of God. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know. And this is the verse that this friend of mine brought up. I write this so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar in support of the truth. Paul wasn't saying, well, you know, Timothy, I need to tell you how to conduct yourself when you get into the building there. He's talking about behavior as believers, that our behavior should be modeled after Christ ultimately, but 
we're part of God's household. We ought to behave like it. You know, one of the things that, you know, at times in, in the past, as we were raising the kids, we would talk to them about their behavior outside, partly because we didn't want them to embarrass us, but partly because there's a certain way we ought to behave as God's people. And we would talk about that. You know, it extends beyond the walls. I had a friend of mine growing up who um, was raised in a very strict Baptist family, but never was saved himself. But one of the things he struggled with, and this is from his own mouth, that there were certain things that they couldn't do when they were out in public, but they could do them all at home. And some of those things included watching movies that weren't appropriate and certain behavior that wasn't appropriate. And he struggled with that because there was this disconnect because their behavior was different based on where they were at. And Paul's point with this is that you're part of the household of God and as such behave that way, inside and outside, if you will. First Peter chapter 4, verse 17. For it's time for judgment to begin, you guys know this, what? With the household of God. Is he talking about Renew Bible Church just within? No. We're part of God's household, part of his family. And so judgment will begin with us. And if it begins with us first, then what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So we have another reference, the household of God. is another way to refer to the church. There's a third way. The church is also referred to as the temple of God, or the temple of the Holy Spirit, or even the temple of the Lord. Now what's interesting about this reference is that it's true of the individual, but it's also true of the corporate entity, the church. What I mean by that is we individually are temples of the Holy Spirit, but so is the church, the temple of the Holy Spirit, as a corporate body. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, what he's referring to there is the individual. And the way that we know he's talking about the individual there, and that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, is because one verse before that, he tells us, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside his body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. He's talking there about an individual committing sexual sin. And Paul says, don't do it. Why? Because your body, individually, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So as a member of the body of Christ, or I'm sorry, as a member of God's church, his household, his family, the universal church, the Holy Spirit indwells you, it becomes God's temple. That's different than the Old Testament. Remember, I've been reading through 1 Kings and Solomon dedicating the temple, and when he did that, Shekinah glory comes down, and God says he'll dwell in that temple, and the smoke was so thick that the priests couldn't even get in to do their stuff. Today, doesn't happen here in this building. It happens individually. Each one of us, the Spirit indwells us. That's why we're able to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so we have this individual concept of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit and our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit. But there's also a corporate entity to it as well. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, in this, excuse me, in this context, Paul is referring to building God's church, which suggests that this verse that we're going to read here in a second is really the idea of corporate filling. Look at um, verses 16 and 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 
verse 16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Now, here's what's interesting. If you just read those verses all by themselves, it sounds an awful lot like what we just read. And you might interpret this as, you individually are a temple of God. That would be true. But this verse, Paul is referring to people that damage the local church. The context here is on the church body. And the reason we know that is if you go back and you look at chapter 3, he's talking about how we work within that church. And he's talking about Apollos and and his ministry. And so the context of chapter 3 is on the corporate body, meaning much like we have here, us. And he's saying, if somebody comes in here and destroys what's happening here, don't they realize they're destroying the temple of God? And so that's where the corporate idea comes in. We individually are temples of the Holy Spirit, but together, corporately, we make up the temple of God. In some respects, we replace the Old Testament physical building, not just individually, but as a group. And so there's this interesting dynamic in the scriptures where sometimes this reference to us being the temple of God is an individual thing, but sometimes it's a corporate thing. When we come together here this morning, we have made up the temple of God. And so this particular chapter here, chapter 3 again, is a reference to that corporate idea of being the temple of God. We see this a little more clearly if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. might make it a little clearer for you. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 21. Well, let's start with verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints who are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Did you catch that? All believers growing together into a holy temple of the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So you can see the corporate idea there that we together, corporately, are being built up together into a single dwelling place for the Lord. Wow, that's wild, isn't it? Each individually, the Holy Spirit comes in and possesses us. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But I don't stand alone because together, combined with every other believer, we are all being built up together into a singular dwelling place for the Lord. Replaces the Old Testament temple, the Old Testament tabernacle. This is where God dwells now. But it isn't just you or me, it's us. Pretty cool how that works. So the third way that we see the church described in the New Testament is this concept of God's temple. And we get a great visual as we look at the Old Testament, but it's been replaced by us. The last way that it's referenced here, or at least I'll say a fourth way, there may be other others you may find, but the last way is the reference to the church being the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23 says, he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And then Paul clarifies, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
We are His body. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my part, or my share, on behalf of His body, which is the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27 it says, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. It's a corporate idea. We together make up the body of Christ in a corporate sense. And so the church is the body of Christ. We're his physical body here at this time. We act like him. We behave like him. We serve like him. That's the point. And so we have these interesting descriptions of the Church of God. It's not only every believer in all of history that makes up the universal church, but we have these local small bodies, we have regional groups of Christians, but we're described as the household of God, the temple of God, family of God, the body of Christ. All of those things describe what this entity is that we call the church. It is not a social club. (laughs) It is not some group. It's the body of Christ. One thing I need to note here is it's been fairly common, especially as of late, to declare and to describe the church as replacing Israel. As if Israel somehow stumbled and fell and has no hope. It's called replacement theology. It's actually common and becoming more popular within evangelical circles. Best way to describe it is Israel screwed up, God's done with them, and so now we have the church and they replace Israel. We are, and they refer to it this way, we are the spiritual Israel. Um, the best way I can refute that is with a technical technical term. It's bunk. Paul makes it really clear in Romans 11 that we don't replace anybody. We get grafted in. Paul says all Israel will be saved. We have the privilege of being grafted into Israel. When we look at eschatology in the next few weeks, we're going to see that God's focus is on Israel. Fulfilling all of the promises given to Israel. We are not replacing Israel. The church is not a replacement for Israel. We are God's people in this time, in this place, until Christ returns and we will be grafted into Israel. Now, there are some within dispensational circles, um, which would include many, much of the theology we would hold to here would be dispensational in respect. But some within that hold to a distinction that... um, Israel remains its own entity going into the eternity, and the church remains its own entity going into the future. So you kind of have two peoples of God in eternity, and I don't see that in the scriptures. We're grafted in. And so it's God started with Israel. We get grafted into Israel now as the church, and and it's one people of God as we go off into eternity. And let's just call it the people of God instead of Israel and the church, and they're separate entities in my head. People get really crazy with their theology on some of that. But the reality of it is we are not replacing Israel. We are God's people for this time and this place. And what's really interesting, as we saw in the book of Acts, this body called the church is now made up of who? Real Israel and Gentiles. Okay? We didn't replace Israel. So just need to make that clear because, again, that's becoming kind of a popular thing um, today. So why is this all important to us? Well, it reminds us of the big picture. The church isn't a building. It's believers, genuine believers who make up the body of Christ. It kind of reminds us that this building isn't what it's really all about. These buildings come and go. You know, it's interesting. You look at the book of Revelation, and I don't know that any of those churches that Jesus addressed there even exist today. 
Churches, local churches, come and go. Regional churches kind of come and go. Think about what happened in Europe. It used to be the, the place for Christianity. Now look at where they're at. Look at what's happening in the United States here. But look what's happening in places like Africa where the church is growing in a regional sense. And it's because that's the real church. And it's important for us to understand that because people today get a little confused. I think our evangelical churches today are filled by unsaved people. Many who think they're saved because they show up and they sing great worship songs and they get emotional and they have the little labels that they wear. Christians, they might wear neat shirts, you know, Christian slogans. doesn't mean they're saved because they're in the confines of a building we call the church or can pull out a membership card that says I'm Episcopal or I'm Methodist or I'm Baptist. The Bible's very clear on that. So that leads us to what our role is as the church. What is our role? When Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18 that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it, that implies that there's a mission of some kind because why else would he talk about the gates of hell not prevailing against it? It's because there's a mission. We saw that mission in two places. The Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 says that we are to make disciples of all nations by baptizing and teaching. We saw in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, you're going to be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So there's a mission for the church, and that mission is to make disciples. It's a process of multiplication. There should be more members in the body of Christ 10 years from now than there was 10 years ago. That's the mission of the church, to make disciples, to lead people into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Peter said of his mockers in his day, where is the promise of his coming? Everything's the same. And Peter says, wait a minute, you don't get this. He's patient. That's why he's waited to come back, because he wants as many to come to Christ. doesn't want anyone to perish, but as many can come to come. And so that's the purpose and the plan for the church today. So as we look at that, I think there's at least five functions that we should be engaging in, both as a universal church, but even as a local church, because we reflect that. And obviously, with the Great Commission, the very first one is going to be, um, you might call it evangelism, but it's all a part of discipleship making, because all of these are involved making disciples. But the first thing that we should be engaged in is evangelism. That's the first step. It's the proclamation and the preaching of the gospel. It's what leads people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. The church ought to be proclaiming the gospel. It's one of the problems today, is that many evangelical churches, while they believe the gospel, when you see the people, when you partake in their services, it's not always clear exactly what's being preached. Much preaching today is what we refer to as preaching to felt needs. Is it really about the gospel or leading people into a better knowledge of Jesus Christ as much as it is how to have the best life, you know, your best life now, and how many other things? I've often referred to the American gospel here as the prosperity gospel. We think of that as the charismatic movement. Many of our churches today are filled with people who are interested in Christ because of what they get out of it. We've got kind of a problem in our churches today. It's because we don't understand that the primary purpose of the church is to make disciples, part of which is evangelism, leading people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jesus, it was a hallmark of his ministry, 
Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says that Jesus was going through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 24, verse 14, The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end comes. Well, it tells us when we're finished preaching the gospel, doesn't it? So from Jesus telling the disciples at Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 1, you're going to be my witnesses. Your job is to make disciples of all nations by baptizing, by teaching them. And then he says, and you're not going to be done doing that until the end. Once you finish that, then the end's going to come. So the last verse, I think, is where we come in. Until the end, what do we have to do? Our job is to lead people to Christ. We can obviously do that in a variety of ways. Um, as we looked at the book of Acts, we kind of saw that that's what they did, isn't it? I mean, that's what the whole book of Acts is really about. It's the growth of the kingdom. It's the growth of the church as they put their lives on the line to share the gospel. Um, Romans chapter 1, Paul says, he's a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, and he even says this, set apart for the gospel of God. Nothing explains the conversion of the Apostle Paul better than what Paul says here. He recognized that when Jesus Christ called him to himself, that at that moment he was given a mission. And that mission was to be a servant preaching the gospel of God to people around him. Um, a little bit later on in chapter 1 of Romans, Paul says, this is verses 15 and 16, For my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes and for the Jew first and also to the Greek. That was Paul's heart. Was seeing people come to know Jesus Christ through the gospel. Gave his life for it. Suffered tremendously for it. Now, and this is something I've actually struggled with myself. Um, lest we believe that evangelism is only for those who are gifted. Um, listen to what Peter said. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Go ahead and turn there. 1 Peter chapter 3. Jump down to verse 15. He says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. What does that mean? That means to give him priority over everything else. Set him apart in your heart. Sanctify means to set apart. Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Why? Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, for those who revile your good behavior in Jesus Christ will be put to shame. Why do I return so often to that verse? Well, I'm not an evangelist by gifting. I'll admit that. I know guys when I was in seminary, every week they would come in with somebody new they led to Christ. I know a gentleman right now, a little odd, a little quirky, Boy, always sharing the gospel. Sees people come to Christ. God has not used me in that capacity like some of these guys. And that's pretty clear from the scriptures that God equips and gifts people differently. Some have this gift, some have that gift. But not having the gift of evangelism, if you will, doesn't excuse us from doing what Peter says here. Being ready to give a defense for the hope that we have. People around us ought to see that we love Jesus Christ. And when they like our behavior, or whether they dislike our behavior, we ought to be able to explain it. And explain it in a way that 
they understand that it comes from Christ. And so from that respect, every one of us is an evangelist. Is that not true? Is that asking too much? No. Because we can all give it offense. Why do you behave the way you do? Why do you believe what you do? You know, it's interesting. We can sit on the street corner and argue abortion all day long, but if we never mention our love for Jesus Christ or the reason why we believe that babies deserve to live, if they don't understand that the reason we believe that is because of our love for Jesus Christ, then we got a problem. We can make all kinds of arguments for what we believe, but if we don't bring it all back down to the fact that we love Jesus Christ and we're desperate to be saved, it doesn't make any sense. We can all give a defense. doesn't mean you have to stand on the street corner and preach, but your neighbors, your family, your friends, people around you, people you come in contact with, there ought to be something that they see in you that they know is different, and then you ought to be able to explain to them even in the simplest sense. Why? We live at a time today where the difference between us and the world around us is going to get wider and wider and wider. And they need us to tell them why. And again, it doesn't mean that you have to go out there with your Bible and preach on a street corner. Again, God has not gifted me that way. But you know, I found something unique happening. The more I pray and ask God to open the doors for that, he never disappoints. In fact, that when we were on vacation up in Wisconsin, I was praying. I'm like, you know, Lord, I haven't been even praying about that lately. I've been so consumed by my own frustrations with how I'm feeling and stuff. I haven't been in the office nearly as much. So I began to pray about it again a couple of days ago, saying, you know, Lord, I need some opportunities here. Just, just opportunities just to drop little truth bombs here and there or let people know that I love Christ. And maybe he'll open that door to a, a deeper discussion of some kind. That's the primary function of the church, is we ought to be doing that. If you're not, you ought to be praying about it. Again, I'm not saying you need to go out on the street corner. Not everybody's designed or equipped for that. In fact, if you try to cram yourself as a square peg into a round hole, you're frustrated. Okay? Use the gifts God gave you, but don't neglect that you need to be a witness as well. So, that's one of the functions of the church is evangelism. Being God's witness for the unsaved world. The second function of the church is edification. This one is more inward focused. What I mean by that is this. It's the, it's the discipleship making. It's the edification of believers. So one of the reasons for the church and one of the functions of the church is that we're supposed to be edifying each other. Building each other up. We're certainly not going to get that from the world around us, right? So edification refers to the building up of the individual members of the, of the body of Christ. Jesus' goal for the church, I believe, is maturity. He wants mature believers. He doesn't want a bunch of baby Christians running around. One way that we do that is through the revelation and preaching of God's word. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists. Oh, gee, there that is. Some as evangelists. And some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, building them up, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until when? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That is God's goal. Part of the responsibility, part of the function we do as a church is we try to accomplish that. 
God has gifted individuals in different ways, including with teachers and pastors, but also in other ways, to equip the church to build people up so they might mature in their knowledge and their understanding so they might ultimately become mature, the mature man that Paul talks about here. And so another function of the church is that we are supposed to be building one another up, equipping one another for the work of the ministry. Another way that's done is through the gifts of the Spirit. That's partly what we see here. I'll let you turn here on your own. But if 1 Corinthians chapter 12, specifically verses 4 through 7, we're told that the Holy Spirit gives individuals within the church gifts for the building up, the edification of the body. We're supposed to be using those gifts. Everybody's got them. You just got to figure out what they are. But those are designed by God, put into you to serve specifically your local church family here, renew, but sometimes even those outside. Some gifts, like evangelism, are focused more on those outside the church. But the gifts are given to build up and to edify within as well. Another way that we do that is through fellowship and encouragement. Hebrews chapter 10, you all know, we're not supposed to forsake the gathering of the body. Why? Because we need each other. We're here to build each other up. We just finished the book of Acts. You can read that on your own again. Look at the number of times that that early church got together. It says daily sometimes. They sold possessions. They shared those things. They made sure there was nobody needy within their church body. If anybody had a need, it says somebody met that need. That's edification of the body. It's why God created the church. He didn't just get us saved and leave us floating out there on our own. He gave us a way to be edified, encouraged, strengthened. And that all happens within the church. This is an area where I think the church, in some respects, has failed miserably. In many respects, many churches simply become social clubs. And people are no better off after being involved with, with that church than when they first started. All the research suggests that. We're one of the most ignorant generations in history when it comes to Bible knowledge. Why is the church shrinking here in the United States? Because we're not doing our job as churches. We focus on all kinds of other things. We're supposed to be building up the church body. That's one of the reasons why when we decided to start meeting together and doing this, the group of us that originally started, the focus was on, you know what? We want to focus on us. Because that's what our Sunday morning time and our body is supposed to be about, is edification of us. So that we're prepared when we go out there. So one of the things we said we weren't going to do is to try to set up our service as an evangelistic tool at the sake of sacrificing the body within. This is supposed to be a training camp. This is supposed to be a time for you folks to come in to be filled up, to be energized, to be encouraged, to be filled with knowledge so that you can then go out and do what we've already talked about. Many churches have flipped it. They've given over this time as a tool of evangelism. I praise their heart for that. But the people within those walls that come in are suffering and they're getting the life sucked out of them because they're not being fed and taught. And you know what happens when that occurs? They don't do the work of the ministry outside the walls. That's why the church is shrinking. And so edification is one of the core functions of the church. Another core function is worship. As the body of Christ, we're called to worship God. There's no question about it. John chapter 4, verse 23. Turn there real quick. John 4, 23. You remember this? 
Jesus talking to the woman at the well, and he says, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Jesus, I believe, was talking there about the establishment of the church. A time would come where the church would worship him in spirit and in truth. Why Israel was not worshiping in truth? They weren't even worshiping in spirit at this time. They were lost. Their leaders were a disaster. Jesus came and told the woman, a time is going to come. That time is now. We worship Jesus. We worship the Father, the Spirit, in truth and in spirit. Now, that's part of our job as a local church body. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. So since we are receiving an unshakable kingdom, let us give thanks. And through this, let us offer worship pleasing to God in devotion and awe. You can look through the scriptures. God's people are called to worship. And we're not just called to worship individually, but we're called to worship corporately. In fact, um, you can go download these. I won't take the time to do it right now, but um, if you look at my notes, you can download them online. i got a section here on worship coming in two forms, individual worship and then corporate. And examples of that that we see in the scriptures. You see both of those taking place in the scriptures. Individual worship, but also corporate worship coming together. God did that in the Old Testament with with the Jews. And we now do it in the New Testament and beyond by coming together to worship together. Jesus even did it with his disciples. And there's all kinds of ways that we can do that. We come together, we pray. We come together, we sing. We come together, we just share. We come together and we fellowship. We don't often think of worship in in that regard, but when you look at the scriptures and you... Look at the way that worship is described in the scriptures. We often think that, oh, we come together, we sing, that's the worship. No, worship involves study, prayer, fellowship, ministry. Those are all forms of worship. In fact, the scriptures refer to them as your spiritual act. Notice that act of worship. Um, Just for the sake of time this morning, like I said, I won't go through all those references. If you download my notes, they're on page 4. But, again, individual and corporate worship. That's one of the functions of the church. So when God established, especially the local church, that was part of the purpose, that we might be able to come together as a body and worship him together. And, you know, there's different, um, you know, you know what it's like to spend time in worship on your own and how moving that can be, but it's kind of different when you come together with others, isn't it? You know, it's just a whole different thing. And God intended both. So that's another core function of the church would be worship. A fourth function of the church is care for fellow believers. Care for fellow believers. James chapter 1, I'll just quote this to you. James chapter 1 verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their distress. And to keep oneself unstained from them. Why does he mention that? Well, the reason is widows and orphans in Paul's day, in the first or in James' day, they were... They were, they were had no help. They had no care. You know? Um, somebody lost her husband. She was, in many respects, on her own. If her kids didn't care for her, and in fact, even within their Jewish system, the teaching by some of the rabbis and the Pharisees was, don't give to your parents, keep it for yourself, declare it to be used for God, and hang on to it for yourself, or give it to the temple, instead of encouraging them to take care of their own family. And so James says, no, we as a church, and he's talking to a local church there, true religion is taking care of those widows and orphans. 
In fact, Paul even gives instructions for taking care of widows. He says it shouldn't become a burden of the local church as a body. It should be first and foremost responsibilities of those family members. But he even goes on to say that when those widows have nobody to care for them, then it becomes a burden of the church. We saw in Acts chapter 6, the widows weren't being taken care of. And what did they do? They went to the apostles. And the apostles put a system in place to make sure that those widows got their food for the day. James chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, be filled. Give them a blessing. But you don't give them what's necessary for their body. What use is that? Basically says our faith is useless if you ignore the needs of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. How about 1 John chapter 3, verse 17? But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? In other words, it doesn't. If you have a brother or sister in need and you can meet that need, and you don't, it says the love of God doesn't exist in you. That's something the first century church took to heart, obviously. If you remember our study of the book of Acts, repeatedly they met together, they sold possessions, they shared their food. Why? To care for one another. Paul even commanded taking up a collection for the saints. Part of what the function of the church is supposed to be is to care for those within the church. Um, it's interesting to me that um, I've been a, you know, been a part of some churches that um, really bragged about how they gave to you know, a large degree of missionaries. They spread out their funds. And yet, in some instances, some of those missionaries were living basically I'll say paycheck to paycheck, could barely meet their needs because no single church really helped take care of them. It was, oh, we'll give a little bit here. And they prided themselves on the number of missionaries that they supported. I thought, but all of those missionaries are starving. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're no better off. And then when they would come home for sabbatical, they'd literally have to travel all over the nation and exhaust themselves trying to raise their own funds to care for their own needs. And, um, you know, we're a small church here. Um, but, you know, we've, we've tried to focus on needs that we find within our own family. And I think about like the Malins and, and others where we see that and we try to do what we can to meet those needs first, which is why we partially have the size of the purse that we do, if you will. But you notice last year when we realized we had a lot more come in than what our expenses were, one of the first things we began to do is to say, how can we use this? To, to take care of somebody, to meet some needs that we have. And if we don't have somebody immediate that needs that, then we'll look at some other sources. But when we drew back into the Dietrichs and what their needs were, it was neat to see how God used that. Um, that's the way it's supposed to be. The church is supposed to take care of one another. And so we're committed to that here, and that's why we've told people before. You know, somebody loses their job or they have some other needs here and they really are, are, need some help, come talk to us, you know. We'd like to try to meet the needs that we can within our own family. And that isn't just financial. It's other ways, too. You know, we care for one another. The last function I'm going to mention here is, very quick, just a celebration of the ordinances. We do some very unique things as a body of Christ. One of them is we baptize. Now, we don't baptize a lot here only because we don't have a lot of, I mean, we're a small family. We don't. We don't have anybody that's recently come to Christ, but in the past, when somebody has expressed a desire to be baptized, that's what we've done, and we do it here. It's a part of our our time, right? But there's also the bread and the cup. Those are things that are unique to us, is the bread and the cup and baptism. And where we do those things, 
are within the local church. And so one of the functions that we see in the New Testament is that the church is supposed to be involved with those things. That's where they occur. So the church baptizes as people come to Christ, but they also celebrate the Lord's Supper. They, in the New Testament, we see them having a meal and the whole bit, and they come together. But Paul even mentions that. When you come together to celebrate, so that's why we do it. So the last function of the church, I believe, is this celebration of the ordinances, things that Christ has asked us to do, either as a remembrance or as a symbol. So that would be the baptism, and then that would be the um, celebration of the bread and the cup. So, I'm going to end it here, um, just because we're coming up on an hour. I had a whole section on the governance of the church as well. Um, I'll just briefly mention some of this. Because we are a body, the Lord instituted a governance model for us. And that governance model began with the apostles, where in that early church, the apostles were the highest form of authority outside of Christ. Christ gave them that. And so you see that in the New Testament. You see where in Acts chapter 6, when they were really struggling with meeting the needs of the, of the um, widows, they went to the apostles. Why? Because they were the authority figures. And they recognized that, and so they went to them for counsel. When Paul first got saved, one of the first things Barnabas did was he took Paul to the, elders, or to the, um, to the apostles in Jerusalem. Why? Because they were the highest earthly authority within the church. But they've all passed on. That's not something that's been repeated. And so what God did was he established two primary positions within the church. One of them is what we refer to as elders. The second is deacons. And we see those spelled out in in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We see it in in Titus um, as well. Um, It talks about those roles and those functions. And um, again, because we've hit that hour mark this morning, I'm going to just leave that out there for you to, to look at. I've got them in my notes here, but... I just want to stress something about that. People don't like authority today. They don't, they don't like having to submit. Um, and yet everything about our relationship with Christ is based on submission. You look at the Old Testament, you look at the New, New Testament, everybody submits to somebody. <laughs> we all submit ultimately to Christ. You know? And so when we look at a healthy church family, that healthy church family is governed properly by godly elders, and is served by godly deacons and deaconesses, you know. And so that's just the way that God intended it. And and some churches don't like that. And, and some, you know, churches are run by dictators. And some have no authority structure of any kind. And everything's out the window, you know. Um, so we'll probably tackle that at some time in the future. Maybe as we go through like First Timothy or something, we'll spend more more time on that. But I look at it from this perspective: God loves the church. And so he provided us with, with a structure that um, allows that church body to be governed. And so there are rules that are put in place as to who should govern, what we should expect of them, and the scriptures spell that out very clearly. And so one of the things that we have done here is we follow that model. You know, David, um, Dustin, and I serve as the elders here. Um, and our goal is to shepherd the flock, and we, we try to not wield authority with power and sort of, you know, you're here to listen to us, etc. We try to follow a biblical model, but it's one that God has placed upon the church to help keep a church healthy. And um, again, it, it's good for us to have that because it expresses God's love for us. You know, it's much like, you know, why did God establish the headship of the husband and the family and a wife coming alongside as a helpmate to him? It's because he loves the family. 
and that's the best model for the family, and it follows the model that, that, that he's you know, ordained and laid out for us. So, like I said, we won't spend any real time on it this morning just because it would be another probably 15, 20 minutes on it. I want to be sensitive to the time this morning. But if you're interested, you can go download the notes on our website. They're in there. But much of it's what you're already familiar with, but it does kind of break down what our expectations ought to be for those who serve as elders and deacons within the church, um, but also what their expectation of us should be. And that's one of the things I love about you guys here is um, uh, the things that the scriptures lay out, how you should treat those who shepherd you. Um, you guys have always been fantastic at, and I've always been tremendously honored to be able to be up here. And, and um, the respect that you guys have shown to me and the teaching that I do is not something I feel I deserve, but it's something you guys have granted. And that's exactly what the scriptures lay out. And so, um, so anyway, I'll leave it at that. Um, but that's the church. So we are God's people, um, and it's, it's good to, to know that he's established a way for us to continue to grow and to mature with the local church here. So it's a great, part, or a great uh, experience to be a part of all of this.